0: Would you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Today our passage is taken from Acts 18, and I'll be reading from the ESV version. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. And he found a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had commanded all the Jews to leave Rome. And he went to see them, and because he was of the same trade, He stayed with them and worked, for they were tent makers by trade. And he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and tried to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy arrived from Macedonia, Paul was occupied with the word, testifying to the Jews that the Christ was Jesus. And when they opposed opposed and reviled him, he shook out his garments and said to them, "'Your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent.' From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. And he left there and went to the house of a man named Titus Justus, a worshiper of God. His house was next door to the synagogue. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision Do not be afraid. But go on speaking, and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you, for I have many in the city who are my people. And he stayed a year and six months, teaching the word of God among them. But when Galileo was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews made a united attack on Paul and brought him before the tribunal, saying, This man is persuading people to worship God contrary to the law. But Galileo paid no attention to any of this. This is the reading of the Lord.
1: Thanks, Laura. There won't be a time to answer any questions that are submitted today because there's going to be a baptism later on after the service, after the sermon itself. But feel free to text your questions in, and I'll try to answer them in the newsletter. Let me pray for our time. Oh Lord God, we quiet in our hearts to hear from you. And Lord, would you use the words that I say to speak to your people. Will you take away the weaknesses that I have, the inadequacy that I have, but would you speak directly to your people to soften their hearts to hear what you have to say to them, that they might heed it, and that their lives, Lord, might be changed for your glory. We pray on this in name. Amen. How many of you know this singer? Her name is Adele, and she's one of the most popular uh, singers in the world today. In fact, my children also listen to, listen to her. She's a Grammy Award winner. But one of the things that about it is that in an interview with Rolling Stone magazine, she says that she has stage fright. And she is so scared of the audience that during one show in Amsterdam, she decided to bail out and escape out through a fire exit. So you imagine that one of the most popular and most renowned singers in the world has stage fright. And this is true of this other singer to Andrea Bocelli, a great tenor who has performed before presidents, before popes, and he says that he still gets stage fright. He says this, stage fright is my worst problem. A voice is very intimate. It's something of your own. So there's always this fear because you feel naked. There's a fear of not reaching up to expectations. Now, Robbie, do you have stage fright when you come out to lead worship? A little bit. <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> but, you know, the thing is that fear sometimes grips us all. And we find that even Paul, one of the greatest missionaries, One of the greatest evangelists that the world has ever known, when he entered the stage in Corinth, he also had stage fright. He had a panic attack, and that ultimately the Lord needed to appear before him and to comfort him. And that we all too, when we are witnessing to others, we feel inadequate. We don't know what to say. We are not eloquent. We don't have all the answers. We feel so inadequate. But in our inadequacy itself, in our inadequacy, Jesus sustains us. Jesus sustains us. The risen Lord sustains us so that we are more than adequate, more than adequate to witness to him. And so here in this part here, it's a little strange that in all the reading of Acts that we have done so far, in all the stories that we have seen, Paul is never presented as one who is weak. Or he's never presented as one who is fearful. In fact, he's always sure of himself. He always triumphs. He always dominates the situation. And there's no mention of fear in all of the chapters that we have read so far. And it's only in today's passage that we get a sense that he is afraid. For in chapter 18, verse 9, He gets a vision, and the risen Lord appears to Paul in a vision and tells him not to be afraid. Ultimately here, visions here are given for a certain purpose. They are not wasted. And the vision tells us that Paul was afraid here. If Paul was a hero in Luke's eye, in the author of Acts, Paul was not a hero to himself at all. Because when we read the Pauline letters... First Corinthians, Second Corinthians itself, we find that Paul is under such immense pressure that he even despaired of life. He talks about fears without fears within, and so, how do we reconcile this perspective? This picture of acts that acts presents Paul is like Paul is an energized bunny, always on the go, fearless. But when we read the Pauline letters itself, he begins to share his inadequacy and his fears. Why is there a different perspective? A simplistic answer would be to say that acts is not historically accurate. But even today, in today's passage, you see that that is not a possible reason because acts is historically accurate. What I think that gives us different perspective here between acts and between letters of Paul is ultimately a different perspective in how the authors are viewing it. When we read through Acts, we tend to think that the book is dominated by two main people, right? Who are the two main people? Peter and Paul. Peter dominates the book of Acts from verses from chapters one to twelve, and then Paul dominates it from verse chapter thirteen all the way to the end. But the central character in Acts, it's not Peter. It is not Paul. Some like to say that the central character is the Holy Spirit. But I tend to think that the central character is the risen Jesus, the risen Jesus itself. He is the one who is both Lord and Messiah. And the apostles are just the agents, are the agents of the reigning Lord in forming and growing his church. Thus, Acts is not really the book about the apostles. Not Acts of the apostles itself, but rather it is Acts of the risen Lord through the apostles. And Luke paints such a positive portrayal of the apostles in the book of Acts, not because, not so much because he wants us to show us what they can do, but because he wants to show us what the risen Lord can accomplish through his human representatives, through his apostles and through you and I. Luke wants to show us what the risen Lord can accomplish through human representatives despite their fears. For in our inadequacy itself, Jesus sustains us so that we can carry on witnessing to him that he is risen, that he is both Lord and Messiah. And in today's passage here, we see that there are two ways in which God sustains us. Two ways in which the risen Lord sustains us so that we can carry on to minister to him. There's the horizontal dimension, and there's the vertical dimension. In the horizontal dimension, in verses 1 to 8, the risen Lord sustains us through the body of Christ, through other believers. And that in verses 9 to 17, the risen Lord sustains us through his presence. Ultimately, we have these two uh, levels of sustaining. And so we'll take a look at the first one, the horizontal level, in where the risen Lord sustains us through the body of Christ. And I'm going to read verses 1 to 8 again. Now, after this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla. The reason why is because Claudius, the emperor at that time, had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them. He went to see them because ultimately he needed a place to stay. And he went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. The reason why? He ran out of money. Like like all of us, we need housing, we need money, and Paul ran out of money. So ultimately he needed to work, and he worked as a tent maker. And here he worked as a tent maker, but every Sabbath itself he reasoned in the synagogue, Trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. But when Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching because that was his primary purpose, exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook off his clothes in protest and said to them, Your blood be on your heads. I'm innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshipper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, next door, but now eventually became a follower, and his entire household believed in the Lord. And many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. And one night the Lord said to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid. When we first read through this passage, the first eight verses itself, we don't get the sense that Paul is inadequate. But then, when we come to verse 9 itself here, when we come to verse 9 here, it gives us the first indication that Paul was afraid and causes us to reread the first eight verses in a new light. And Paul receives this vision from the Lord. And a vision in the book of Acts here, yeah, visions are given to key individuals at significant points in their lives so as to guide them. Paul first received a vision of a Macedonian man to come over to cross the Trajan Sea and go over to Macedonia from Croatia. And now, at a low ebb in his life, when he is discouraged, the risen Lord again appears to him and gives him another vision to encourage him. And the weakness that Paul experienced is also confirmed even in the letter that he wrote to First Corinthians. He says that when I came to you, to the church in Corinth, I came in weakness with great fear and trembling. 1 Corinthians two three. What was the cause of this weakness, this inadequacy, this fear and this trembling? Acts doesn't tell us here. And what we're going to suggest is maybe a little bit speculative. But I think that although Paul received a vision to come to Macedonia... Things did not seem to go well for Paul. And when he came to Corinth, he was discouraged how things have fared. After all, he was beaten and humiliated. He was beaten in Philippi here. He was shamefully treated. He was possibly anxious about attacks from Jews. But I'm not so sure that he was anxious about attacks from Jews. If he was anxious about attacks from Jews, why would he put his place of worship right next to a synagogue? I mean, if I was scared, you know, I would put it right as far away from the Jews as possible. So I'm not so sure it was because that he was fearful. I think, utterly, he was not fearful of the Jews, but he was fearful of failure after a disappointing ministry at Athens. Because in Athens itself, in Acts 17, we read that not many people believed. If you take a look at Acts here, when he... Acts, when Paul was in Berea, Acts 17.2, 17.12 says that many people believed. When he was in Thessalonica, a large number believed. But when he comes down to Athens, Luke says that only some believed. Only a few number, a few individuals. Moreover, he was treated with contempt. He was called a foolish babbler. Literally, it means a seed picker meaning like he's like a bird that comes and picks seeds, meaning the sense that he picks up ideas like, you know, people taking scraps of information, and then he recycles them as his own ideas itself, with lots of trying to show and pretense. So he was treated with contempt. And as far as we know, Paul did not plant the church in Athens. And moreover, he left Athens very quickly. When he had came down to Athens itself, he had sent Paul and Silas itself to go back to Thessalonica with instructions that they had to come to him as soon as possible, as soon as possible. But Paul didn't even wait for them in Athens. He probably felt that ministry was not very fruitful in Athens and decided to move on. Moreover that, there's probably a sense of loneliness. Paul had always been ministering in teams With Barnabas, with Paul, Silas, Intimity, but now you find that he's for himself. It's a sense of loneliness here. And that ultimately here, Pauls ultimately felt this sense of loneliness, but I think he was also overwhelmed and paralyzed by the enormity of the task of evangelizing Corinth itself. Because in the 50s itself, in the 50s here where Paul is operating, Corinth was the largest and the most prosperous city in Greece. The estimated population at that time is 80 to 100,000. So it was a huge population itself, and he questioned his own sufficiency to do the task. He did not have a commanding presence, and his speaking was not rhetorically powerful. And we know that the people in Corinth did not respect him, for even when he planted a church, the leaders in Corinth actually looked down on Paul, because he was not as sophisticated as the orators who visited Corinth. So with all of this sense of this inadequacy itself, God nonetheless sustains Paul. And God sustains Paul ultimately through the body of Christ. And so one of the first ways that God sustains Paul is ultimately that God sustains Paul by bringing new co-workers, new co-workers. We heard about Priscilla and Aquila, that they had just been kicked out of Claudius, kicked out of Rome, sorry, by Claudius itself. And we know that this happened roughly at the time of AD 49, because from a letter in Suetonius itself, is that Suetonius was a historian in the second century. He said this, that since the Jews constantly made disturbances at the instigation of Crestus, presumably either Christ as a as a Christ there, he, Claudius, expelled them from Rome. Crestus prob- could be a corruption of the word Christus is here, but Crestus could just be a name of another, of another person. We don't know for sure. But this is just one of the indications that Acts is historically accurate because we get confirmation from our secondary sources. So here, he got kicked out. But ultimately, here, they were probably already Christians when Paul met them in Corinth. Is here. So when Paul met them, He went to look for them, and ultimately, he began to live with them. And we could say that this was the beginning of a beautiful friendship. He lived with them, he worked with them, he became his associates in evangelism, and ultimately, they risked their lives for Paul, as Paul tells us in Romans. But apart from God's provision of new co-workers, God also provided for the safe return of old friends, for Paul and and Silas and Timothy came and then God also provided for churches that supported his ministry. When Silas and Timothy came, they probably brought funds from the church in Philippi and the church in Thessalonica so that ultimately they were then able to support Paul so that he could focus his energy on teaching itself. Moreover, God provides new believers in the person of Titus Justice who opens up his home so that they could then be a new center of worship. In His inadequacy, God sustains us and God sustains Paul through the body of Christ here. Each person plays an indispensable role in the spread of the gospel. The focus is not just on Paul, but on the whole body of Christ working together. And you wonder, you know, when Paul experienced this, When Paul experienced the body of Christ working together and supporting him, did it give rise to his understanding of the importance of the body, the importance of the theology of the body, so that ultimately he began to write about it in 1 Corinthians 12. And when he writes, ultimately he says this, that just as a body, though one has many parts, but all its many parts form one body, so it is with Christ. Now the foot cannot say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body. It will not, for that reason, stop being part of the body. And Paul reminds them that now you are the body of Christ, and each one of you is a part of it. So within the body of Christ, everybody is important, and everybody works together to support the entire body. Because with the body of Christ, ultimately, it counters loneliness, you're able to generate more effective strategies, and ultimately the spiritual gifts of the body supplement what you are lacking. At a retirement dinner, one of my colleagues made this comment, you know. He asked this question, what makes an institution great? And he says that it's ultimately not a list of important scholars on a pole of strings. Any institution can do that. But what makes an institution great is a place where each person builds up the other, where each person shares one gifts and builds up the other. And I ask, what makes a church great? And what makes a church great, it's not the presence of a prominent pastor or capable leaders. But what makes a church great is where everybody is built up and mobilized where all of the saints are equipped for ministry. Each and every one of you have a role to play. Have a role to play. Each of you are important in this grand scheme of God's plan to bring about his kingdom on this earth. And that makes it great because all of us are now functioning as how God intends the church to function, as a body, as an organism itself, and it's ultimately through the body of Christ that the risen Jesus sustains each and every one of us in adequacy so that we are more than adequate to witness to him. Now we come to take a look at the next, uh, the next level in terms of how God sustains us. And the next way in which God sustains us is that the risen Lord sustains us through his presence. I'm going to read it here in verse verse 9 and 10 here. So one night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent. For I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. So the exalted Lord spoke to Paul in a vision, encouraged him to keep on speaking. And ultimately, he stayed on for a year and a half. And this is the longest time that he has stayed in any place since he began in all of his missionary journey. The only other longer time where he stayed was in Ephesus, where it was about two to three years. So the time here in Corinth was very important here. I'm going to run through the next couple of verses because the next couple of verses gives us an example of this divine protection that Jesus pr- promised Paul. So it reads on through verse 12. While Gallio was a pro-council of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charge, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallios said to them, If you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off, then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him up in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern whatsoever. Gallio here, he is the oldest son of Seneca the Elder and the brother of the philosopher Seneca the Younger, who was ultimately a tutor to Nero. And here we know from an inscription in Delphi that Gallio was a pro-council from 51 to 52. And you can see uh, Gallio there. G A L L I Omega N O S. All right. And again, this is just another edic- indication of how accurate Acts is, historically accurate. And this inscription is significant because it helps us to locate the time when Paul was in Corinth. And Paul was in Corinth in AD 51 here. And so when Paul was in Corinth, the charge was that ultimately that Paul is inciting the people to worship, ways, to worship God in ways that are contrary to the law, probably the Roman law. So the church is very similar to that in Thessalonica. And so the Jews are saying that the new worship center that Paul is setting up, it's not a rival Jewish center, but it's ultimately an insidious cult that is promoting a religion that is detrimental to the political stability here. So Paul is instigating a rebellion, and ultimately they brought Paul before the Bema Seat. The Bema seat is the judgment seat, and this is a map of Corinth here, and the, this is the Bema seat here located, and we get, a, this is what it is right now today in Corinth, where you can go and take a look at it, but this is the Bema seat where probably Paul stood before Gallio, and ultimately the charge was played before Gallio, and Gallio dismissed the charge, and the the reason why Gallio dismissed the charge was that he recognized that ultimately the dispute was a dispute between different Jewish sects and that it was not something political at all. And it is somewhat significant in the book of Acts because this is the first official Roman declaration concerning the followers of Jesus and that the dispute between Judaism and Christianity is an internal affair. Ultimately, then, the implications for the story of Acts is that Christians should be regarded as a Jewish group, having the same legal privileges that Jews have, meaning that they can worship their religion without being harassed by the political structures here. And so when Gallio gave this verdict, the Jews got a little bit upset, naturally, and they started beating up their new synagogue leader, Sosthenes probably because he had a lousy strategy but it's significant that Sosthenes maybe ultimately became a Christian. Because we read in 1 Corinthians 1:1, Paul called me an apostle and our brother Sosthenes. Maybe he got kicked out by the Jews and then he ultimately joined the Christians here. But what is significant here? And let's go back to the vision that we saw that in verse 9 and 10 here, where the risen Lord appeared. To Paul here. He says one night the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent for I am with you and no one is going to attack and harm you because I have many people in this city. So Paul stayed in Corinth here. What commands did the risen Lord give to Paul? Two commands here, but let's take a look at the first one. The first command ultimately is do not be afraid. Now, telling somebody, don't be afraid, not going to cut it at all. Ultimately, you need to give them reasons why they do not need to be afraid. And so the risen Lord gives the reason here. He gives two reasons. Ultimately, the first one is his presence, and the second one is his protection. The presence here, the risen Lord says that, I am with you. I am with you. And this recalls, remember, what Jesus himself had told the apostles in Matthew 3 and 8 when he gave them the Great Commission. When he gave them the Great Commission to go and make disciples for all nations, what was the last thing, the last comfort? He says that I am with you always to the very end of the ages. Ultimately, we don't need to be afraid because we are not alone. But God does not only give his presence for Paul, he gives you his protection. And so we read it here, it says there, for no one is going to attack you and harm you. And so during Paul's time here in Corinth, he had a divine promise that he was going to be protected. And two weeks ago, when Roy Christians was here, he gave us a testimony of how God had protected himself. Do you remember that? How he was in Russia itself and he received this threatening phone call, and ultimately, but he still felt called to go out to minister. And what did God provide? God provided a German shepherd that just sat in front of their door to protect Joy and the rest of the children. And so, God, in His marvelous provision, protected Roy and Joy Christians, and here He also protected Paul so that ultimately he could minister. Ultimately here, God's promise of provision and protection, especially that is given to Paul, is ultimately specific to his time in Corinth. Because we read in other passages that he was stoned in Lystra, he was beaten, he was imprisoned in Philippi, but in Corinth, God protected him so that Paul could plant a church in Corinth. Now, God could sometimes do the same thing for us and protect us from the harm that comes to us, but even if he does not, even if he does not protect us from physical harm, he will always be present with us so that we are able to make a firm stand in the midst of evil, and Christ will deliver us from evil, or he will deliver us through the evil as he stands with us. Again, one of my colleagues has a son that's in the Marines. And we asked him, aren't you concerned about the safety of your son? Being in the Marines, fighting in Syria, fighting in Iraq, in Afghanistan, aren't you concerned? And he ultimately told told me that I must trust in the divine sovereignty of God and that God is just as sovereign in Libertyville as he is in Iraq or as he is in Syria or as he is in Afghanistan here, that God's a sovereign regardless of whoever my son might be. But what about the statistics? You know that the statistics, if you're in a war, higher probability of getting injured. But ultimately, our God is not bound by statistics. And that our God is a sovereign God. And that within his plan, that we are ultimately immortal till our work on earth is done. And this is what George Whitfield said, that we are immortal until our work on earth is done. And so God protects us, until he, it's time for us to call us home. So this is the first command, that God tells Paul, do not be afraid, for I am with you, and I will protect you. But what is the purpose of this protection? What is this purpose of this do not be afraid? Is it just so that Paul could be comfortable, you know, just relax, sit back? No. Ultimately, the purpose of it is so that he could keep on speaking so that he would not be silent. God gives us such protection, not so that we could be comfortable in our own bubble, but rather so that we could continue to minister to him. And so Paul says to keep on speaking, do not be silent. Because that when we are fearful, when we are weak, we are inadequate, we become paralyzed. Paralyzed, we want to keep a low profile. We want to hide ourselves here. But the risen Lord tells Paul not to be silent, but to speak. In a similar manner, God sustains us in inadequacy, not so that we can be comfortable, but so that we can continue to be a witness for him. The reason that Paul receives this command, the reason that God gives to Paul ultimately, is that because I have many people in this city. Now, God does not say that there are many people in this city. He doesn't say that. Or rather, he says, I have many people in this city. Or I prefer the ESV here. It says, I have many in this city who are my people. And meaning that God has already appointed many in that city to be receptive to the gospel, to receive the gospel so that they might ultimately be his people. And they are just ready for the harvest. And just as Jesus himself says, you know, lift up your eyes to the fields, that they are ripe for harvest itself. And so in the same way, the city of Corinth was ripe for harvest. And you know that when it comes down to harvest, it's all hands on deck. Everybody stops whatever they do so that they could be all reaping the harvest. Because if you delay the harvest, the harvest is going to get spoiled. So in the same for us today, that ultimately we are living in the last days, the end of all things is at hand, and the coming of the Lord is at hand. So the harvest is here. We think that we are inadequate, but in an inadequacy, God sustains us with his presence so that we are more than adequate to witness to him. Let me just conclude with uh, two applications here. God has called us to share the good news that forgiveness of sins is freely given to all who believe in Jesus, the risen Lord. So consider your school, consider your workplace, consider your neighborhood as the city of Corinth, as a city like Corinth that God has called you to share the gospel the commission to witness to the risen Lord is given to all followers of Jesus. Remember in Acts 1.8, it says that the whole power of the Holy Spirit will come upon you, and you will be my witnesses in Judea, Samaria, and unto the ends of the earth. The promise of the Holy Spirit cannot be separated from the commission to witness because the function of the Holy Spirit is to testify to Jesus So if you have received the Holy Spirit, you have also received the commission to testify to the risen Lord. You may feel inadequate, be intimidated about proclaiming the gospel in your school, workplace, or neighborhood. But if you're intimidated and afraid about proclaiming the good news, you're not alone. Paul, one of the greatest apostles, felt that too. But Luke reminds us that in in our inadequacy, the risen Lord sustains us so that we can be a witness to him. God speaks to you as he spoke to Paul. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and there are many of my people in this city. But some of you may think that I am so overwhelmed with life, that I really don't have the strength to witness to Jesus. But it is in our weakness that the sufficiency of Christ is clearly manifested. For God's power is perfected in our weakness. For whenever I am weak, then I am strong. So when you're overwhelmed with life itself, instead of asking, why is this happening to me? change the question and ask, why is this happening for me and for the kingdom of God? Instead of asking why this is happening to me, ask, why is this this happening for me and for the kingdom of God? What is God doing in this current situation? And ultimately here, Why is God using this situation to bring about a change in you and to bring about the change for the kingdom of God? Remember the Priscilla and they were exiled from Rome. It must have been pretty traumatic to be kicked out of your hometown. But when they ultimately ended up in Corinth, they used that situation and they were partners with Paul. They used the difficulty of that situation For the kingdom of God, and so you heard it say that you know when life gives you lemons, you make lemonade, right? You heard that before, but I say to you that when life gives you lemons, make lemonade for the kingdom of God. Make lemonade for the kingdom of God, and that in our weakness, in our difficulty, in whatever struggles we face, that we still try to make an attempt for the kingdom of God. And so I am so encouraged by my brother Michael Eckwart that even in his current situation, in his current weakness, even when he has to go to hospital visits, he is always wanting to make a point of telling others about Jesus. Mike, we're praying for you tomorrow. We're have surgery. So I'm just so thankful for you that how even in your weakness that you are allowing God to use you so that we can be a witness for Jesus. Remember, we are not able to do all of this because we are strong. In fact, God wants to remind us of our inadequacy so that we are not inadequate in ourselves, but that we are adequate in who? The risen Lord and Jesus. And that we are more than adequate because of the Holy Spirit who is working through us so that we can continue to be a witness to Jesus. Let me pray for us. Oh Lord God, in our inadequacy, when we just are confronted with our own weakness and with the challenge of the task ahead of us. Help us to shift our focus away from the problem, away from ourselves, but to turn our eyes upon Jesus itself. And that as we turn towards you, we recognize that our strength is not in ourselves, but that our strength is in you. So, Lord, help us to use the difficulties that we even encounter in our lives. Help us to use that difficulties so that we may be a channel of your love to others so that we can proclaim of how you are more than able to make us conquerors, ultimately through the power of your Spirit in us. We pray in this in your Son's name. Amen.